0: got a Bible, turn to James chapter 1. If you're new with us, we started several weeks ago a series through the book of James as we've been looking at uh, what James has to say and speak into our context, into our culture. And this morning we're in James chapter 1 beginning in verse 5. If you didn't catch the last couple of weeks, you can go back and catch the podcast uh, there on SoundCloud. You can find links to that and information about that in our worship guide, also on our website Encourage you to go back and check that out and catch up to speed where we are. But we're in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. And we'll read down through verse 8 together this morning. So if you have a copy of the text, go ahead and turn there. If not, it'll be on the screen for you as we read it together. In James chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever lost your equilibrium before. There's some of you who perhaps have lost your equilibrium a little bit. Maybe you've gotten vertigo before, right? Where there's something in your inner ear just isn't quite working right, and you can't have a hard time finding your balance and figuring out which way is up or which way is down, which way is north, south, east, or west. Now, I've never had vertigo before, but I have lost my equilibrium. Uh, several years ago, uh, my dad and I were fishing out on a lake out in Uh, East Texas or western Louisiana, depending on which way you're looking at it from, called Toledo Bend. And Toledo Bend is a massive reservoir which stretches about 60 miles north to south and several miles east to west in its breadth as well. It's 181,000 acres of water. For a little reference point, Lake Ray Hubbard's about 20,000. Right now it's probably about 7,000 acres of water. Um, But it's a massive lake out there in East Texas. And so when the wind begins to blow on Toledo Bend, there's really no hiding from it if you're on the main lake. And so my dad and I were fishing some main lake points, and we were catching fish. And so the wind began to kind of pick up a little bit. And we thought, "But well, we're still catching fish. We're going to kind of ride this thing out. And so the wind began to blow a little bit harder and a little bit harder and a little bit harder until finally it's like howling out of the south at like 30 miles an hour. Now, I don't know if you've ever been on a lake when the wind begins to blow like that. Uh, but what happens is there's lots of waves that begin to crash. And the, what that happens with the boat is it begins to bounce up and down. Right? So I'm standing on the front running the trolling motor, trying to stay on the particular area that we're fishing, and the boat's just doing this number. Right? Every time a new wave would kind of cro- co- come and crest, it would, sometimes there was water like cresting over the bow of the boat, but we're like, man, we're catching fish, and we're going to stay and ride this thing out. So for several hours, we keep casting and casting and casting with waves just pounding the boat, and the boat's just like a little cork there bouncing in the water. So finally, whenever the the bike dies down, we're like, we're not going to stay out here in this wind if we're not catching fish. So we load everything up and we make a beeline back to where we were staying. And the whole time we're riding in the boat, too, it's like, right, we're just bouncing in the wave after wave after wave. And So when you get we get back to solid land and we we kind of pull the boat up into the slip and we step off of the boat. I'm my my body is still doing this number, right? Still rocking back and forth. I step off the dock onto solid ground, and I'm still, like feel like the, the, the earth beneath me is shaking because my body's kind of lost its equilibrium a little bit, and I can't, I can't I have a hard time finding a balance, right? Which way's up, which way's down, which way's left or right, right? You're standing there trying to talk to someone. And you feel like everything's just kind of spinning around you. Now, some of you have been there physically before, but some of you have also been there emotionally and spiritually before. We've kind of lost that equilibrium because trials have a tendency to do that to us, don't they? Trials have a tendency to cause us to lose our equilibrium spiritually. And so we're, we might think one day, like, option A is the best route to go. Then the next day, it's option B. We're kind of like Jerry Jones. The last person to get our ear is the person that we're going to listen to, right? Because we don't really know. We don't really have a guiding principle in the midst of that. Trials have that tendency to cause us to lose our equilibrium, and so I've seen it over and over again in my life, and I've seen it over and over again in the lives of people that I've ministered to for the last 17 years. I've seen whenever trials hit their lives, oftentimes there's that loss of equilibrium, and so they make choices in the midst of trial or distress that they would not have made had they not been put under that kind of stress or in that kind of position, and what I've found oftentimes is that when people make choices in the midst of trials or distress, they wind up oftentimes compounding their troubles right? In the financial world, there's such a thing called compound interest, right? So you make an investment, and, the, and then, then the, the, the the interest that you earn on that investment is added to the principal, and then you earn interest on the new principal as it kind of compounds and continues to build and build and build. Or on the flip side, if you owe somebody something to a credit card company, right? And you're paying the credit card company, but you're not able to pay the credit card off. Well, the new interest that they're earning on your principal gets added to your principal, and then you pay interest on top of that. So it's compounding interest. And there are some people who are in the midst of trials because they lose their equilibrium. They lose their equilibrium. They wind up compounding the troubles that they find themselves in. Where they might have had a trial at work and they're under a great deal of pressure or stress. And their boss is on their back or in their ear over and over every day. And so they come home Right? They come home with all this weight that they're carrying, and their, their wives and their children. I've known men, their wives and their children pay for it. Right? So they're under a trial in the office place in their vocation, but then it all of a sudden becomes compounded in the home because they are just acting like a, a, a jerk Okay, whenever they come home. And it gets compounded. In ministry, I've talked to, sat down across the table from somebody a couple of years ago who lost their job. Lost their job in the midst of a trial, right? Layoffs, get fired, they lost their job. And yet they were, they were earning. Their earning potential before losing their job was in the six figures, well into the six figures. And so their family had a particular lifestyle that they were accustomed to. Now, whenever this individual lost his job and his income was literally slashed by about 80%, Part of the problem was his wife did not adjust her lifestyle and spending habits to their new level of income. And so what happened was they racked up about $125,000 with a credit card debt. Right? In a trial and compounding troubles because we lose our equilibrium. Some of you have been there before. And you've seen trouble compounded in your life because of poor choices that you made when you lost your equilibrium in the midst of a trial. And when we read verse five of James chapter one and you try and connect it back to the previous context and you go, why does James now move to talk about wisdom? He just said that whenever we're in trials, that God has a purpose in those to sanctify us and grow us and to mature us. Yet when you come to verse five, now he starts talking about wisdom. Why would he talk about wisdom now? And Here's the reason. Because the thing that will sink you the fastest in the midst of a trial is if you lack wisdom. That will sink you the fastest. It will cause compounded troubles in your life when you lose your equilibrium unless you're acting wisely. So James moves from this discussion of trials and he continues to kind of flow right on into this discussion of wisdom now in chapter 1, verses 5 and following. Because without wisdom, in the midst of a trial, you're going to sink faster and farther. It's the one thing that you need the most. So this morning, as we look at this text together, we want to consider what wisdom is. And then also we're going to look and see there's a couple of kinds of wisdom that people try and operate with in the midst of trial. And then finally, we want to see how we get the kind of wisdom that James is talking about here. So what is wisdom? What kinds of wisdom are there that we operate with in the midst of trial? And then how do we get the one that James is talking about so that we don't sink faster and farther in the midst of whatever trial we might find ourselves in right now? So what is wisdom? First of all, the Bible, when the Bible speaks of wisdom, it speaks of wisdom as basically this. Wisdom is applied knowledge. It's applied knowledge. When you look throughout the Bible, you can read this, the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, you can see the Proverbs or the Psalms or Ecclesiastes or Job. In fact, many people will look at the book of James and say that James is probably the closest thing to wisdom literature that we have in the New Testament. But, but when it, whenever the Bible speaks of wisdom, it's most frequently driving at this issue that wisdom is applied knowledge it has to do with doing what you know right doing what you know now one commentator talked about this and he said look it's not necessarily just having a knowledge of the bible although that's where it starts but then wisdom knowledge crosses over to wisdom when you say here's what I know to be true here's what I know God has said and then you begin to act and reorient your life around what you know to be true and what you know God has said that's wisdom It's one thing to say somebody knows the Bible really well and they can cite all kinds of verses. It's another thing to say that someone's very wise because they're taking those things that they know and they're actually implementing them in their lives and their lives are changing accordingly. That's wisdom. Listen, I went to seminary with guys who knew the Greek and the Hebrew a whole lot better than I did. A whole lot better than I did. And I went to seminary with guys who knew the Bible backwards and forwards. And I went to seminary with guys who were much better communicators. And yet they disqualified themselves from graduation or from ministry because they did not live in accordance with what they knew. It's one thing to know the Bible really well. It's another thing to live what you know. And throughout the scriptures, consistently, the understanding of wisdom is not just having head knowledge of what the Bible has to say, but then reorienting your life around what scripture teaches and living accordingly. And this has nothing to do with intelligence. It has nothing to do with intellect. It has nothing to do with IQ. Right? You can have an IQ that is off the charts and be a fool. Or you can have an IQ that is under the charts and be very wise. Be very wise. Very wise. It has nothing to do with intelligence. It has nothing to do with IQ. It has nothing to do with what you can do on a standardized test score. It has everything to do with do you take what you know and then live in accordance with it. That's what the Bible talks about when it speaks of wisdom. So you can know that it's wise to spend less than you make, and yet your output is still greater than your input. Right, you can have that knowledge, or you can know that it's wise to guard your eyes and ears from corrosive influences and still put in place no boundaries. Or you can know that it's wise to speak about Jesus and the Bible to your kids, yet His name never rolls off your lips in family conversations. So you can know a lot of things and not do any of them. And wisdom consistently in the Bible is applied knowledge. Now, what kind of knowledge? James isn't just talking here about general knowledge that we apply, but he's talking about a particular knowledge that in the midst of trials that we have to apply this truth or this knowledge to keep us from sinking fast and far. And the particular knowledge he says you got to apply here is the truth that he just expounded in verses 3 and 4. Right? In verses 3 and 4, James says, listen, in the midst of trials, you got to see that they have a sanctifying value. You've got to see that God is doing something and then to produce a maturity in you that did not exist before and in fact would not exist any other way. You wouldn't come to that place of maturity or growth any other way than going through this particular course that God has set for you. And James says, if you're going to keep from sinking Beneath trials, whenever your equilibrium begins to get all jacked up and you begin to feel like things are unstable beneath your feet, he says, you've got to have the wisdom to know that in this, that God is working in you. You've got to apply that truth to the reality of the situations that you're facing. Wisdom is applied knowledge. Now, there's two kinds of knowledge that people tend to operate on the basis of whenever they hit really difficult seasons of life, whenever they are moving through a trial. And one of them is worldly wisdom, and the second one is biblical wisdom. And these have some marks to them to help us identify whether or not we're operating by one or the other, right? So let's talk a little bit about worldly wisdom and then biblical wisdom. Worldly wisdom, worldly wisdom has a couple of marks, and the first mark is this: the first mark that you're operating on worldly wisdom. So you're taking knowledge from either the culture, right, outside of you, or human intuition inside of you, but not necessarily looking upward to God. The first mark of, of worldly wisdom is that it's prideful. It's extremely prideful. So whenever we hit trials, right, when we hit trials because of that prideful um, foundation that we're operating off of because of worldly wisdom, we tend to think, right, everything would be so much better in this world and in my life if I were in charge. Right, because I know better. I know better. I know how things should work out for me. I know what jobs I should be able to keep or maintain or hold. I know what uh, kind of financial situation would be best for me to be in but right? i know what kind of earning income or potential that i should have right when we hit trials we tend to think man everything would be so much better if i were in control if i were at the helm if i were calling the shots if i were plotting the course if i were determining the direction if i were in charge and pulling the strings everything in my life would be so much easier be so much better See, prideful worldly wisdom thinks that we know better, that we have more knowledge than what God has, that we know better what we need than he does. But secondly, prideful worldly wisdom also thinks not only do we know better, but we deserve better. We deserve better. C.S. Lewis once said it this way. He said, for the wise men of old, the cardinal problem of human life was how to conform the soul to objective reality and the solution was wisdom self discipline and virtue but for the modern mind the cardinal problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of man and the solution is a technique or i would add or a pill right to put it another way is this to kind of paraphrase what lewis says he says the problem for men and women centuries ago was this how do i play the hand that i've been dealt Here are the cards that are sitting in my hand. How do I play these things? But for the modern men, modern man, modern women, the problem they have is not how do I play the hand that I've been dealt, but how do I get different cards? How do I get different cards in the hand that I've got sitting in front of me? What do I need to do in order to, to, to make all this better? Because fundamentally, pridefully, worldly thinking thinks that we deserve much better than what we have right now. We know better, and we deserve better. In fact, Carl Minninger, who was a psychiatrist who died uh, back in 1990, but he written some monumental works through the the early part and mid part of the, the, the 20th century. He said basically what has happened in modern society is that we've replaced what he calls a moral model with a medical model. In other words, the problem fundamentally with us is not that that we are sinners who are fallen and estranged from God and we do evil things, but the fundamental problem is that we've got some kind of dysfunction that we need to treat and medicate to make our lives better because we deserve better, right? We deserve better. We deserve so much better than where we are and what we have. And this assumption, I think, lies at the root of much of the dysfunction in our society and in our lives. Because we think we know better and we think we deserve better. In fact, one commentator um, said it this way. He said, one of the frightening features of the present day is the widespread dependence on sedatives to cope with situations which our grandparents would not have seen as a problem. Ordinary factors like bringing up children, facing a tomorrow which is essentially the same as today, problems of feeling trapped and bored, problems of having time and not knowing how to fill it, The cynic would say that the problem whether there is a life after death has been replaced with the problem of whether there is a life before death. But essentially, it is the same problem of finding meaning, which James says can be answered by a gift of wisdom from God given to those whose personalities are integrated around him. And as I think about all the issues that we face in our daily lives and in our culture today, many of the things that we wrestle with as young adults Man, my grandparents and great-grandparents would have seen that as a normal fact and course of life. Or he goes on, the commentator says, or again, widespread in society, there are breakdowns brought on by the really sharp problems of our day. People find themselves no longer able to face the grind of making ends meet, or they have dealt particularly savage blows by the onset of disease in themselves or their family. And they have no resources by which to find their way effectively through such hazards, but again... There is the wisdom of God, which, however, is granted to the hearts, confess a soul loyalty to him. James' diagnosis, he says, does not find expression in many consulting rooms, but that it does, but that does not affect its truth as an acute diagnosis. People astray from God are troubled. They have an inner, no inner or outful restfulness. So whether it be the daily grind that we're having to face of kids fighting in the home and Uh, you know, uh, turmoil or tension in the context of relationships or whether it be the very acute stressors like illnesses or job loss. Listen, what our typical response is this, is to go out and find some kind of pill or some kind of technique to make it better as opposed to going, God, what is it that you're doing in the midst of this? Why am I where I am right now? What are you trying to root out of me that is currently in me? As opposed to saying, hey, I just gotta find a pill. Or I've got to find a three-step process and a self-help manual on the Barnes and Noble bookstore to get me out of this. Now I don't want to say that I, I want to be very careful this morning because I want to say that anybody who's taking any kind of medication for anything, right, is wrong. Because there are some times where medication can be very helpful for very acute stress or very acute pain, or very acute hardship or distress that people find themselves in. The problem is is when people continue to stay on that medication who may not necessarily need it, and it begins to mask true character development in their lives. James says trials come to develop character, to make you mature. God uses those. And whenever we flee from them by finding a pill or a technique to minimize them, then what we're essentially doing is we're masking the true character development that needs to take place in our hearts and souls. It's kind of like taking an anti-inflammatory for two years and never really working out all the knots in the muscles. Right? Friday morning, I went out and ran nine miles. Okay? Kevin made me. He twisted my arm. He forced me to get up and go run nine miles with him. Um, Immediately following that run, um, I went to a place here in Rockwall called Arosti. Now, Arosti is a soft tissue therapy uh, clinic where they work through all the knots and adhesions that develop in your muscles over time because um, probably because I didn't take care of myself very well. All right. And so um, I'm laying on the table there and the doctor's working on me. I'm laying face down on this table and we're having conversations about, you know, all kinds of things going on in life like church and family and um, her and her husband are expecting their first child, so we're talking about that, and we're laying there talking, and she's working on my calves and my Achilles area and around my heels and feet, and she's got her hand, and she's digging, man. I'm telling you, she's digging for gold. There must be gold buried in my lower legs because she was looking for it, right? So she's running her fingers and her thumb all along my lower leg, and every time she would hit a knot or an adhesion, I'd be in the middle of a conversation. I'd be like, so yeah, church, the other day we And so I'm kind of getting all worked up every time she hits something, right? Now, for several years, I just kept taking anti-inflammatories thinking, if I just kind of, I can keep masking the pain and masking the pain and masking the pain, the problem is there are knots in there that the anti-inflammatories are not going to get rid of. They're not going to get rid of that. You see, the truth is for some of us, we have knots in our souls and adhesions on our souls, And if our first inclination is to run to a technique or a pill to get out of the trial that we find ourselves in, we are stunting the character development that God wants to do in us. Worldly wisdom is prideful. It thinks that we know better, and it thinks that we deserve better. But it's also temporal. It's also temporal. You see, what worldly wisdom says is that if I'm going to be happy, I have to get it here and now. That all of my happiness has to come in this life. That in order for me to be happy, I have to have this house, or this car, or this, 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 this job. And so I've got to pursue that at all costs. And I might sacrifice everything because I have no, no understanding that there is an eternal happiness that lies on the other side of this age where when the Son of God rises and returns, that there will be a happiness and a hope and a joy that lasts forever and ever and ever. Worldly wisdom is very temporal. I've got to get mine, and I've got to get it now. Because if I don't, I'll never have it. Now, for some of you in here this morning, maybe I just described your whole mode of operation over the course of your entire life, right? You think you know better and deserve better, and because you think all of your happiness has to come now, then you're willing to sacrifice whatever it takes in order to achieve that or acquire that happiness that your heart so desperately longs for. See, you've been operating by worldly wisdom. Some of us have been operating by worldly wisdom, and as a result, what has happened is every time that marriage required work, too much work, we would trade in or trade up, <laughs> right? Because I got I to gotta be happy, and the only place I can get that happiness is now, and I deserve better, right? You even see people who are going through divorce, and like Facebook begins to light up with, oh, girl, you deserve so much better than that. Or, man, she treated you so bad for so many years, you deserve so much better than her, right? It's worldly wisdom, worldly wisdom. And so every time marriage gets hard, or you have to do some hard work in the course of a relationship, you trade in. Because i got to get my happiness now, right now. Or because you want that house or that car, right? You live with no financial margins. And I'm going to bless anybody else. And you're really kind of scared day to day because you're not sure if that paycheck, next paycheck is really going to cover all of your expenses. But i got to get my happiness now. You don't understand. I needed that house. I had to have that car. I had to make that purchase. Why? Because I want it here and now and there's no other place that I'm going to get it. And I deserve it. And my life would be so much better with it because I know better. See some of us that's the whole course of our lives we've been operating according to worldly wisdom. But James says there's another way. There's a biblical wisdom. And whereas worldly wisdom is very prideful and very temporal, biblical wisdom, biblical wisdom is very humble. One of the marks of biblical wisdom is it's humble. In other words, it recognizes I'm a fool. I don't really know any better. <laughs> I don't really know any better. And, and quite honestly, I don't deserve better. I don't deserve better. God's grace in my life. God's grace in my life. really is. <laughs> I don't even deserve that. To have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, I don't deserve that. I don't deserve to have any of the material blessings that God may have, has, have given me over the course of my life. I don't deserve better. I don't know any better. God knows better. And I deserve very little, but he is very gracious and he gives. So it makes us very humble when we're operating in accordance with biblical wisdom. Right, for instance, you read the book of Job. And you get to the end of the story in chapter 38. It's the first time in all of Job's afflictions and all of Job's trials and all of Job's suffering that God finally speaks to him. (laughs) Because before that, Job's friends are going, man, what did you do to get this? Right? And Job's like, I didn't do anything. I'm innocent. And all these things have fallen upon me, but you get to the end of the book and after everyone has given their prescription or their diagnosis to Job about what he needs to do or what he should do, God finally speaks in chapter 38 and chapter 39 and chapter 40. And this is what he says. Job, where were you? Where were you, Job, when I created the foundations of the world? Where were you whenever I separated the land from, the, from the, the dry land, from the seas. Where were you, Job, whenever I created the mountain goats and gave them hooves to be able to climb up on the tallest peaks? Where were you, Job, whenever I put everything that you've ever seen, known, taste, touched, or experienced, and I spoke it into being? Where were you? Did I consult you, Job? Did I come to you for guidance? Did I come to you for wisdom? And obviously, as you read through the chapters, the, the answers to those rhetorical questions are what? No, not at all. God doesn't need anyone to consult him, right? God doesn't reach out to a consultant or a consulting firm to go, okay, now, guys, what what should we do here? (laughs) What decision should we make? He says, whenever I created, I did that out of my own wisdom, my own accord. And if us modern men and modern women would come to that realization that, indeed, God is wise and we are fools, (laughs) We'd be operating by biblical wisdom. We'd be very humble and we would recognize, I don't know any better than God knows. And quite honestly, I don't deserve any better than what God gives. But secondly, not only is biblical wisdom humble, but it's also hopeful. Because biblical wisdom recognizes this world is temporary. It's very temporary. Kind of like what uh, Abraham Uh, or what the author of Hebrews says about Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 8, he says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. And here's why, verse 10, For he was looking forward to the city, that has its foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Author Hebrew Hebrews says, even when Abraham went into the land of promise that God had given to his forefathers, that even there he lived in tents. Why? Because he was looking for something more. Something more glorious, something grander than that. In other words, he was looking beyond this life into the next. He was looking for that city that's described in Revelation that comes down out of heaven where God would make his dwelling place with man. He was looking for An eternal inheritance, not just a temporal one. And biblical wisdom is always looking beyond this age into the next. So it says, I don't have to get all of my happiness now. I don't have to get all of my fulfillment now because there's coming a day in which the heavens will part and Jesus will come back. And every wrong will be made right. Every injustice will be overturned. Every joy that I experienced here and now will be like an appetizer for the main course then and there. So biblical wisdom as opposed to worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom is prideful. Biblical wisdom is humble. Worldly wisdom is temporal. Biblical wisdom is hopeful. Which one are you building your life on? Do you think, I know better. I deserve better. i got to get it all now. You go, I don't know any better than God knows. And quite honestly, I don't really deserve anything that he gives. It's all a gift of his grace. And I'm waiting for one day there to be great joy and satisfaction and happiness and hope as it's fulfilled and realized before my eyes. James says wisdom is applied knowledge. Or wisdom is applied knowledge and it's applied knowledge and my hope is myself and for the rest of us is that we would be building our lives on that platform and that foundation of biblical wisdom but how do you get it third and final question how do you get this wisdom how do you get it When you read the bible particularly in the book of proverbs you're going to see in the book of proverbs the ancient sage says things like the beginning of wisdom is this get wisdom here's the beginning of it you got to get it now if you're going to get it that means you got to want it right or if he says things like this in Proverbs 3, 13 and 14. Blesses is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. Now, if you're going to find it and if you're going to get it, that means you've got to seek it. So if you want biblical wisdom, you've got to look for it. You've got to chase it down. You've got to pursue it. You've got to pant for it. Right? You've got to seek it. One of the ways you seek it is through Scripture. In fact, Spurgeon used to say this. He used to say, listen, if your Bible's falling apart, it probably means your life isn't falling apart. Right? Because you spend time and you dig into what God's word has to say and you read it and you seek to apply it and you seek to embody it, embrace it, and you eat it. It's like food for your soul, even in the midst of trial, in particular in the midst of trial. So you go to scripture, you might go to experience and see how God has worked in your life, or the lives of others in the past and learn from what he's done there. Or you might look at experts, people who are very trained and well, well equipped in particular areas to give you counsel or guidance. But what James says here is that the way that you seek it, and this particular, what, particular to what James says here is very, very complex, right? Listen to what he says. He says, you got to ask for it. you got to ask for it. The way you seek it from God is that you ask for it because you don't have it in and of yourself, right? It doesn't exist somewhere deep down inside that you got to kind of look inside, and dig deep enough down here and find all this storehouse of biblical wisdom. He says, rather this isn't a wisdom, it's a self-help wisdom that you're going to get off the bookshelves or off Kindle or off Amazon, but rather this is a wisdom that comes from God. It's not self-help, it's God help. In the midst of your trial, in the midst of your challenge, in the midst of your distress. James says you got to ask for it. Isn't that what he says in verse 5? If any of you lacks wisdom, what, do you, what should you do? And he gives a command here. It's not a suggestion. He says, let him ask God. Let him ask God. Let him ask God for the wisdom to be able to see your trials through the lens of verses 3 and 4, that God, there's sanctifying value to them, and so you don't want to just medicate them away, and you don't want to just find a technique to diminish them and their effects in your life, but you want those knots of your soul to get worked out so that you can move forward in a healthy fashion, not just masking character flaws that never get developed. you got to ask him for the wisdom to see the sanctifying value there. You've got to ask him for the wisdom to not ask only why, God, because don't many of us cry out that? I know I do whenever tough times hit, right? God, why am I going through this? But rather than just asking the why question, asking the what question, God, what is it that you're trying to cultivate in me? What is it that you're trying to develop in me through the midst of this hardship? James says you've got to ask for this wisdom. But he says you've got to ask for it in a particular way. He says you've got to ask for it. But with your asking, there's got to be a trusting that's joined to that instead of a doubting. He said, whenever you come before God, you've got to ask, not double-mindedly, right? Where you go, well, God, I'm going to seek you for this, but I'm not real sure if you're going to come through, so I'm going to go look over here as well, right? I'm going to go seek worldly wisdom. I'm going to ask you for God, big, biblical wisdom, but I'm not sure that's going to work. I have really seen that work before, because I, I really feel like I know better, and I deserve better, and I've got to get it now. But you've got to ask for it, not with a double mindedness where you're kind of one foot in God's camp and one foot in the world's camp, but rather with a single mindedness that joins a trusting to your asking and comes to God and says, God, if you don't come through, right, you know, I'm kind of pushing all my cards and chips to the center of the table and saying I'm all in on this. God, if you don't come through, I've got no other source, no other stream that I'm looking to to give me guidance or direction in the midst of this trial. He says, you've got to ask for it with faith. Trusting that God's going to provide, that God's going to show up, that God's going to do what only God can do in the midst of your hardship. Are you asking for it? Are you asking for it? Not for the trial. None of us ask for the trials, right? But are you asking for wisdom in the midst of them? So they wouldn't be like one who is tossed to and fro, who makes, you know, option A sounds really good today. Option B sounds really good tomorrow and option C sounds really good on Tuesday. And so on Tuesday, the last person to get your ear is the one that you go with, as opposed to how God is guiding and directing you to stay the course in the midst of it. So you would not have this instability about your life. But rather, when, 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 you, when people look at you, they would say, there's, there's, there's a foundation there. There's a rock there underneath their feet. Because you're trusting that God's going to show up, and you're not looking anywhere else for the wisdom that you need. Now, how can you be sure he's going to show up? James says, you can be sure because he's generous, and he's gracious, and he's gentle. He says, ask God who gives what? Generously without reproach take those in reverse order. God doesn't look down and go, you know what? I can't believe I got to come through for them again. (laughs) I can't believe I got to show up again. I can't, I I can't believe they can't figure this out one more time. Here they are again, banging on the door, asking for wisdom. I can't believe they can't figure it out. Or man, they just blew it. Do they remember what they did last week? I remember what they did last week. Do they remember what they did last week? And then withhold what we need. No, he gives without reproach. Very gently. And he gives generously. In other words, he's not stingy in what he gives. He's going to provide enough wisdom for you to be able to navigate the trials that you are in right now, today, in this moment. And he gives because he's gracious. His very character is gracious, and so out of his grace he gives. And he gives. And he delights him to give. James tells us that God gives because he's gracious and generous and gentle. Do you trust his character in the midst of trial? That he's working something in you, so you go to him and you say, would you give me wisdom to see it and to believe it and to trust it and to continue to move forward in it? And James not only tells us this about God's character, but... I'll close with this. Jesus, Jesus shows us this. James says it to us, but Jesus shows it to us. When you look at Jesus, you see God who is gracious. When you look at Jesus, you see a God who is generous. And when you look at Jesus, you see a God who is gentle. And if you haven't seen him, if you haven't seen him, then there's no reason you have to trust God's character. But if you have seen him, if you have seen him, you've seen his generosity, and you've seen his grace, and you've seen his gentleness. You have every reason in the world to trust God's character in the midst of this trial, so ask. Ask for wisdom. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and the band's going to come. They're going to lead us in a song as we close this morning. And as they do, and as you think about the great truths that we'll be singing together, I want you to ask God for wisdom right now in the midst of the trial that you're in whatever difficulty that you might find yourself that's camped out on your doorstep, that you would ask God for the wisdom to navigate it well, seeing through the lens of its sanctifying value in your life. Let's pray together. Father, we come today. We thank you for your grace and goodness. We thank you that you are a God who is generous, a God who is gentle, a God who is gracious. And Father, if you were not and had not shown that to us in your Son, the Lord Jesus we would be adrift, tossed back and forth between waves that would push us in one direction one day and another the next. Because you have shown us and told us that you are indeed a God who is gentle and gracious and generous. We can trust your character and we can come to you even in the midst of trials that you have ordained in our lives to bring about the transformation of our character into the likeness of your son. So may, we, may, you, may you give us the grace that we need to trust you. To trust your wisdom, a biblical wisdom that is humble. Knowing that we don't know any better. Knowing that we don't deserve any better. And knowing that this life is not all there is. But we're looking over the horizon to the age to come for the life that will be. Father, for... Our friends here in the midst of trial this morning, I pray, I pray they would look to you in these moments and in the weeks, days, months and years ahead. I pray it in Jesus name. Amen.